Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. This is the podcast that brings you the greatest innovation change makers in the world of insurance and insure tech. We speak to innovation leaders from carriers and brokers. We speak to insure tech founders and C-suite executives. And we bring you all of the people that add value to that community, whether it be private equity, venture capitalists, or even people like organizational psychologists and thought leaders and futurists. We try really hard to bring you the most innovative people in the world of insurance on a global basis. So with that in mind, we'd love your support. So please like, share, follow or subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Alex Bond. Welcome to the Leadership Insurance Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by FinPro. FinPro is a leading insurtech specialist recruitment business that operates on a global basis. We have delivered assignments across North America, throughout Europe and into Asia. We are super excited to speak to anyone who has some recruitment challenges that is either starting or scaling a business. And we're confident we can help you find the people to help you innovate the world of insurance one new hire at a time please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com for more information. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by Phil, um, who is, well, chairman of Brightcore and CEO of DevStride um and we'll flip between asking questions about both just to make it complex but phil how are you doing doing very well thank you so much for having me on good and uh, no one else at home will know this but i have to thank phil for his patience because we've been having some uh, really uh, interesting technical difficulties i i keep disappearing again on camera like some sort of bad 80s sci-fi special effect but um but here we are we're rocking and rolling so we're good um yeah it's um, been a fantastic opportunity to have witty banter back and forth so yeah. <laughs> witty banter that is uh that is in my repertoire i'd like to think so um look phil before we get going i'm sure most people out there listening certainly know who Brightcore are but um be great if you could introduce yourself and 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 particularly the two hats that you're wearing currently yeah absolutely so um many many years ago um, i've co-founded uh Brightcore and which originally began as a company called intuitive web solutions doing um quoting systems for agent portals and we did that for several years and a group of our customers came to us and asked us if we wanted to replace uh, their core admin systems. And so Brightcore was born back in about 2009. We started writing code for that, wrote for a couple of years, 2011, launched the product. And I was the CEO of that company for 16 years. Um, I ran that um, IWS and then Brightcore. Grew the company quite a bit. We went from an early seed round there in 2011, all the way through a Series A and then through a Series B with uh, Warburg Pincus in 2019 i stayed on for about 18 months after that and led the company and eventually realized that my my role is probably best as as the founder creator type and unless as the operational manager in the scaling organization mm-hmm. and so uh, you know, departed bright core thought i'd stay retired for a long time but it turns out if it's in your blood to be a founder like two months on the beach is enough. <laughs> you know, 16, 16 years of work, you need about two months to reset, and then you're bored out of your mind and you need to do something else. And so 
uh, have gone in with a group of founders now to launch DevStride, which is doing project and portfolio management for agile teams uh, to try to address some of the challenges that we experienced while we were implementing these big complex software projects at Brightcore. And so I uh, have about 20 years in enterprise SaaS and uh, 16 years in insure tech and have you know, given a lot of speeches and done a lot and seen a lot. And absolutely, I'm delighted to be here uh, visiting today. Amazing, amazing. So much to pick up there. And, and, and we just want to scratch the surface of it. But you know, you and I have obviously spoken before uh, prior to this. And I, I thought what was particularly valuable is most of the time we're talking to people here um, on the podcast about the kind of earlier stage of their career um, or early stage of their entrepreneurial journey. Um, and what we're looking for probably is to sort of unpick some of that knowledge of what's it like to exit when, how yeah. do you know this about yourself? So I kind of, when did you realize that it was the right time to step away from that CEO role? Uh, was it something you realized or was it something that was kind of, you know, sort of, was it a group decision? Um, yeah. T t talk to me about that. Cause I think knowing when the time's right, it's, a, it's a, such a crucial skill, uh, get out of your own way for your own happiness, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I would say it, it was it was more of a joint decision uh, between the board and myself through through a series of conversations. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, in, in reflecting, I think I, I knew for a couple of years before I actually exited that, you know, my time was probably reaching its its peak. And a lot of that comes back to the idea that you know, there, there do tend to be different types of founders in the world. There are types of CEOs. And sometimes you get, you know, sort of a, a sort of a crisis CEO or a growth stage CEO. And, and I'm really very strong as a founder creator CEO. So when I get to be close to customers, close to product, I'm building new things, I'm creating things, I'm watching people's eyes light up and get excited. That's where I love to play and where I love to be. And in every company, uh, there's, I guess maybe one of the dirty secrets of, of success is that in uh, the early stages of any company that you go and start, and I'm experiencing this again with DevStride now, you get to do all the fun things. You get to actually go in and build screens and go out and find, you know, those enthusiastic early adopters and you get to spend one-on-one -on -one time with all your customers and all those things that, that you really love. And as you become more and more successful, your job migrates from those things to things like cap table management and, you know, uh, long range financial planning and an HR policy. Mm. And there are people who are fabulous at all of those things, love all of those things. And if you're the sort of the product founder type, there's a point in time where all of that overtakes your schedule fully. And you may not find yourself enjoying your job as much. And that's kind mm -hmm. of where I found myself. And so the board was pushing for more and more um, activities that were, I was less and less interested in, <laughs> in overseeing. And so, so there just came a point where it was really a natural, a natural time for me to step out and to bring someone else in. And I think that was a good move for everybody. And, and I've been really happy since. And, you know, I, it was I think that's the big thing is if you wake up in the morning, you're like, I don't want to do anything <laughs> that yeah. my job involves. Yeah. It's probably, probably time to be done with that. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I, 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 I've got this phrase that uh, I, I think about a lot, which is uh, uncomfortably competent and, and, <laughs> and about you ending up in a role that you're competent at, but you don't enjoy. 
and and it becomes right. a, a really well played prison quite a lot of the time. Um, it, it does, it does. Yeah. That it's an, another thing is that uh, founding a new company, uh, and those of listening to the podcast who are first time founders probably know this. Your uh, seed stage capital partners will put salary limits on on your income mm -hmm. um, as a leader and as a CEO. And the, my my salary cap now in a startup is is dramatically different than what my compensation package was at Brightcore after sixteen years. So so you know yeah, yeah it's the the golden handcuffs thing is, is powerful. Yeah yeah I, I mean I experienced that on a really micro level in, in, in when I was employed and and I wanted to look at different parts of the value chain within the insurance industry and I wanted to look at tech and change management and but I was really really good on the search team running the sort of traditional insurance um, parts of the business and and every time I went for promotion or different team and they were like no you're doing a great job you just got to stay there and 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 I think that I think that about employees as well I, I think it's it's um you got to be really careful where that balance between kind of comp and re remuneration and, and having the kind of ability to sit there and say, do I enjoy this role? Now, I appreciate it's a luxury to be able to make those decisions. Um, it but, is. Uh, you know, and mine's certainly not born out of being uber successful. It's just born out of the fact that <laughs> I'm a guy without any children or, or responsibilities from that <laughs> point of view. So it's a, it's a little bit, it's a little bit easier for me. And I sort of turn it to my friends, you know, three, three kids going, you should just quit. They're like, yeah, no. right. Yeah, no, so much. So there, there, there's a, I used to give every employee and will again in the future. Um, now in my, in my new uh, venture, uh, a whole speech when they would come to me and ask me for a big promotion because that happens regularly when you run a, a sizable company. People come mm. and say, well, you know, I'm really looking for career advancement and all those things. And I would sit mm. people down and, and walk them through the journey of promoting up through a, through a company. And, you know, frequently uh, that next promotion represents a $20,000 bump in compensation, but, you know, maybe a doubling of your responsibility and stress. And so, so it, it's not always true that the next step in your career ladder is the best step. And, mm -hmm. and I, th I think that that's something that we're kind of conditioned to believe all the time that maybe isn't really true. Mm -hmm. I was thinking when you were talking about it as well, there's a, there's a balance at the very early stage as well. And it depends if, if you've got a venture back business, you can, you can get some people on board straight away. Um, but like I'm for one that, you know, I run a very small company. The bits that cause me stress are the bits that I, I really want to farm out as soon as possible. Yeah. As soon as I can find anyone competent to do half these things, um, then I will, I will push them away because I want to stick to the core of what I do. But the core of what I do is the talking to people, meeting new clients. I love all of that. And, right. and, and, and there's a point in which you're running a, a sort of early stage startup actually where you're doing a lot of things that you really don't want to do. And then I think you reach a point where you get rid of all those things. And then when you get the really big job, when the company reaches it, you come back to doing those bits yeah. you don't want to do again. It's like a really weird virtuous. It's a weird donut. Yeah. 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 Somewhere in the early middle is where everything's really, really fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it totally agreed. It, I, my first, so for a little bit of a, a funny story about that at Brightcore, it had been, you know, 16, 17 years since I mm -hmm. had looked at a bank statement myself <laughs> and been responsible for it. And when we went to found DevStride, like order of operations, number one, I was, I was like, hey, well, what's the first thing I need to do to start this company? Well, I should probably, you know, file for a business license, get a charter pulled together, get a bank account. 
well, we don't have any revenue. We had no customers. And it turns out if you go to a commercial uh, financial institution and say, I'd like to open a corporate account, and they say, what's your revenue? And you say, zero dollars. No one wants to give you a bank account. And I lost three <laughs> weeks of my life trying to find a bank account. <laughs> it's just this absurd thing where I'd gone from having like, you know, tens of millions of dollars on my balance sheet to yeah. I'm trying to get somebody to give me a bank account. And so... It, wow. it, it, it's it's fascinating that you know just the scope and the scale difference in in those things that's so funny that's so funny i mean they talk about that don't they i mean i say they objectively it's like me i talk about this all the time and yeah, early stage founders we we predominantly work with early stage businesses like anything from c through to series b yeah. and, and there's always this oh this person needs to fit they need to have startup you know fit and i think there's not enough objectivity put on that. You know, what does that look like? Just because you've worked at a very big company doesn't mean you can't work at a very small company. In fact, it may be this absolutely the thing you need to be successful. Um, but is that something you think about? Is is that because you know it yourself? Do you have, you, you have people that are right for your early stage journey, but they're probably not right when you get to a certain size? You know that yourself. Is it something you're conscious of when you're sort of trying to hire people, put teams together? I, I have strong opinions on this one. Ah, <laughs> um, <laughs> good. <laughs> the, yeah. So, there, the larger an organization gets by design and, and out of necessity, mm -hmm. the more specialized the roles become, and mm. that means that most people who have spent their careers in larger organizations are used to having a fairly narrow focus in their job. And they, they, they go very deep in some particular mm -hmm. area. They probably have a lot of credentials and certifications and all those things. And, you know, I'm like, I am a project manager. That's my job. Um, and I know everything about project management, but the moment you ask me to step out of that lane, I'm like, whoa, that's not my job. Yeah. And um, this, we actually experienced something similar at Brightcore hiring out of the education sector where, um, you know, people from education sort of have, and if you've been like a college professor or something, you have sort of a different mentality around your scope. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest things you're looking for in a startup environment and in an early, you know, seed to Series A stage environment is people who are comfortable wearing multiple hats and in fact thrive wearing multiple hats mm. because you know and, and those seem to be people whose attention span doesn't doesn't hold too long if you give them one repetitive task for a long time sure. um, and that's out of necessity because when your team is five people or ten people or even 20 people everyone is juggling quite a few different priorities and as the team grows of course you get more specialized and then you, there, there's a tendency in the team to just transition to people who want to go deeper and be more focused and early on, you want people who are have more more breadth and a lot of energy, and you're looking less for you know really really extreme depth in any one area and more uh, you know a balanced sort of portfolio of skills. And mm -hmm. I, I find that to be the case, and I I know that probably the single biggest determining factor on success in in both of the startups that, that I've run are. Um, are just your willingness to get in and learn something new. You know, no one's got There's no manual. No one's ever written this down before because no one's ever thought about it before in this company. There's mm -hmm. no playbook. There's no flow chart. You're going to go into a room and I'm going to give you an objective and you're going to figure it out. And then what you're going to give me back is the manual or the flow chart. And then the next person that we hire will have that. And that'll be a luxury for them. That'll be great. And mm. so, you know, some people love that, some people can't stand that. And I think that's a really good determining factor on whether you belong in a very large company or whether you belong in more of a startup environment. Mm. 
I, I think my thing is I sort of, I, I challenge everything. So unless I'm the person to write it the first time, that's why I'm happy in smaller businesses. I know that <laughs> about go. myself. Yeah, I need, <laughs> yeah. I need to be the person writing that manual for the first time. Um, because if I'm the person coming in down the line, I'm going, what idiot writes manual? And so it's just, it's self-awareness is so important, I think. Um, Absolutely. I, 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 I love, you've clearly got some song views on, on culture and where you fit culturally. So I wanted to ask you about how do you, how do you manage culture as a business grows? You know, when you go from that 16 year journey, um, how do you keep that culture going as it grows and scales? Or, or can you, is, I suppose is the question. Do you realistically think you can? The culture has to change. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that a lot of founders fight because they fall in love with the early culture because the early culture in any company really is just a reflection of the founder's personality and values. And sure. so the early team tends to imprint very heavily um, for companies that are successful. There tends to be a very enthusiastic, very charismatic leader somewhere um, in that sort of ecosystem. And the rest of the culture tends to imprint on that and really build up around that. And a lot of people will call that leading through a cult of personality. And um, I'm guilty as, you know, possible (laughs) in that way. I I find it very natural to lead through a a culture, a cult of personality and find a lot of people who I really get along with. They get along with me. We're going to go in a room. We're going to eat pizza. We're going to drink four Mm -hmm. or five beers and knock this out and get it done. Mm -hmm. And everybody's like happy and excited. Um, as Brightcore, so Brightcore, um, by the time I exited my role as CEO, we were up to a little over 350 employees. So I watched Mm -hmm. the company go from, you know, you know, three or four employees to that like 10 and then, you know, 50 and then a hundred really changed things. And then 200 changed things and 350 really was different. And at every, every scale, I had to adjust and modify the way that I, thought about the business, the way I thought about leading people, the way I thought about, you know, policies and performance management and, and all of those things. And there are huge um, migrations that need to occur in your own thinking. And if you're not prepared to make them, it's a good signal that that you should get out earlier. I also think that there there's a lot of rewarding, um, there's a lot of rewarding experiences that await if you are willing to grow with that, um, with that team count and mm-hmm. to evolve your thinking, because there is certainly a limitation on how much you're able to accomplish through a cult of personality, right? You, you mm-hmm. can only really build maybe 150 tops. And I think for most people, it's probably 30 or 40, you know, impactful relationships in your life where you, you know, the sort of people you can walk in a room and say, we just had an issue, it's two in the morning, I need you to get up with all hands on, let's go get this thing done, and everyone's excited to go make it happen. You can manage a small team like that. You can manage a large team like that. Mm -hmm. And so your scope of influence as a human being is going to be limited if you only ever learn to lead through a cult of personality, because you'll Mm -hmm. never be able to accomplish more than what a group of 20 or 30 people can accomplish. And mm-hmm. so, you know, I found it challenging to expand and to learn how to run larger teams and think more operationally and how to set more formal goals and set up performance tracking mechanisms and all of those things. But I did find it rewarding to watch um, my team output larger and larger objectives 
and to tackle bigger and bigger problems because it felt like we were making more of an impact in the world overall. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think there, there's a lot um, that's rewarding on both ends of that spectrum, but absolutely the culture will change from a cult of personality to something that is more objectively defined, intentionally defined through a management team and through a board as you grow. And, and I think there's beauty on both ends of that spectrum. Mm. Yeah, because something that I was struck by when we're talking about you know, cult personality businesses, and I don't disagree with anything you said there. I think that's absolutely true. And and you know, what I like about the recruitment industry, and and I, you know, I always end up bringing it back to this or Agiltex because it's two things I know about. But they mm -hmm. are cult cults of personality. They're usually almost a successful consultant or headhunter, and and then they build around them, and and they tend to be reflective of that person. But one thing that I'm really mindful of, you know, hoping to build my own little cult uh not just in recruitment you know uh want to move out to arizona and have of have course of course yeah have a ranch or something uh but no who no, laid the whole thing <laughs> but the um uh, is, is being mindful of of, of what, what impact that has on on things like diversity and hiring diver mm. diversely because the the challenge is you go i want to have people that i want to chop up with over a pizza and a beer and i completely agree with that point and the, and the danger is that you go oh i want people that think like me and the, the, that's not reflective of any uh diversity specific metric but but there is a danger there because you you, you then go i want people that are like me uh, and as businesses grow you need definitely a decent proportion of people that don't think like you and that's Absolutely. why you want them in the business but um it's it's a real balancing act um and 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 that's why i suppose that's why those successful companies do outstrip that that cult personality space you know they get beyond that because they start to higher more pragmatically but i do think maybe you do need that group think at that beginning because it has to be important for those 30 people to get up at 2 a.m and say oh we've got a problem we're going to address it well um, you know i think there, there's there i agree with everything you said there as well um the group think can it, that can take on different flavors and mm. you know in in its sort of um negative form group think is everyone's afraid to combat you know some loud person in the room so, so whoever the most charismatic leader is in the room is going to rule the day and run the conversation because they're charismatic mm. and so so we're group thinking and no one else is really bringing any new opinions to the table or maybe they can't because everyone thinks exactly like in the first place although i think mm. i think that tends to be less true and tends to be more true that that the loudest person in the room just carries the conversation sure um and so, so you know, th that's the downside to group thing. On, on the the positive side of it too, um, a different perspective on it is when you are running for your life early on, trying to get to revenue, sustainable revenue, sustainable headcount, sustainable product, all of those things. Um, too much conflict can be uh can be death you know analysis yeah. paralysis and yeah. and it's more important that you get something done are you familiar with with the the any map will do analogy that no 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 please run me through it but i was uh, just i had this conversation this morning about yeah this. so yeah there, there's, a, there's an interesting there's an interesting uh case study I, I for a while i did it's something i'd recommend to everybody um i went and did a bunch of the mit exec ed programs you can do mm -hmm. while you're in your career and and you learn all kinds of things i think hb uh, has things like that and carnegie mellon does there's a bunch of schools that offer it um and i went and did did a round of those and and there was a case study that was particularly impactful to me which was um there's a story 
of a, a, a football team, soccer team, if you're in the U.S., uh, that crashed in the mountains. I think there's a movie about this. Mm. And um, several people died, but like 18 people survived. And this one guy found a map in the, in the wreckage and said, I think we can make it out of the mountains if we just follow this map and go this way. And you know, the harrowing journey ensues and, you know, cutting to the end. Everyone survives following this map. They get to back to civilization. Turns out it's a map of the wrong mountain range. And... <laughs> But but everyone lives, and and the the moral to the story, the the, the lesson from the case study is any map will do sometimes, mm-hmm. and it is frequently more important that you just keep moving than it is that we get the exact right answer. And so mm-hmm. I think you know the the positive side of that equation is that you if you get people who are all willing to maybe disagree early, but then commit and move, which could be mistaken for groupthink, but, but it's not as long as you're having that healthy dialogue up front, but yeah. then you move. I think that that's necessary for survival in the startup. Whereas then in a later stage company, when much more of your job is not wrecking the ship, because someone built a mm-hmm. ship and, it, and it's sailing along nicely and you don't want to wreck it, then, then there's much more of a role for a sort of more confrontational sort of thinking. And, you know, that, that sort of like, um, putting up antagonistic systems of control in order to, to make change hard on purpose because you have a system that's functioning well. Mm. There was a, there was a recent study I read about um, building the highest tower and I, and I cannot, there was three different groups. I think it was students, but um, it was definitely execs and children were had to build the highest tower, very limited materials. It was, you know, like sticks and twine sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and the children on average uh, built the highest tower every time. And and the point was that they would they would have a one, they were continuously able to test and be creative and they weren't because they weren't emotionally invested in the right. ego so much um but the biggest thing that they would just give, jump on a decision and just go with it they just go oh let's just yeah. do that let's just try that oh it's broken yeah okay what we could do now next idea we'll build that and um and, and and sophie my marketing manager and i this, this morning we're having this conversation and i just said some things have just got to be good enough um, yeah. and, and we'll come back to them and we'll perfect them. But, um, and I do get that because I think uh, coming from a search background, search is all about finding the best of the best, of the best for that, for that role. And then I started working increasingly with earlier stage businesses and it was like, oh, that's, it's just not going to work in this environment. And that's not to right. say that we're looking, we're looking for quality at all times, but we need the best within a time frame so mm-hmm. we can move forward. We can't wait six months for the best talent because, you know, we've got a twelve-month runway. <laughs> by that time, that person, <laughs> right. by that time a person starts spinning up their wheels, we've got four months for them to do anything. Not particularly fair and... to the candidate to hire no. them with four months of runway left. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I think I think good enough is is is, is a huge adage uh, to stick to. Um, I wanted to ask you something. We had a really interesting conversation about about funding, and I got loads of questions about funding, and, and and you know, I want to talk to you about you know what you've done recently and all of, all of those good yeah. things, but. Um, what did you learn about fundraising that they don't teach you in the textbooks? <laughs> oh, oh my, uh, so much. The, 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 the you're happy to talk about on the podcast. Yeah, no, no, no. This, should this podcast be 12, 15 hours? Um, let's hear, let's pull a few, let's pull a few nuggets out. Um, yeah. Number one, who you know tends to matter a lot more than the uh, quality of your pitch deck and the quality of your idea. And I have found that to be true more than once now. 
and there are now you have to have a good idea that doesn't mean you can walk into a room with a you know idiocy on a napkin and and raise money um, yeah you need to have something quality put together but i've watched a lot of really brilliant uh founders and engineers go out and try to start companies get nowhere because they didn't <clears throat> network appropriately and I, you know that's another one of those things that, that can have a positive and a negative side to it, right? You could, you could call it, you know, playing politics. Um, and mm -hmm. of course, all these things play into the, you know, the, the larger conversation we're all having about systems of power and all those things. But ultimately, at the end of the day, the people who have the money want to give the money to people that they feel like they can trust. Mm -hmm. And we're all human beings, and we tend to trust people that we feel like we know. And yep. You can't beat that. That's just that's evolutionary in so many ways. And so there is, I think, something that is not taught a lot is that is very, very important, especially if you're in a founder sort of position and you plan to be raising money now in the future, you plan to found other companies in the future. You should be out there meeting and networking with capital partners every day of your life. Yeah. If there's a day where you don't talk to a capital partner once, you might have squandered an opportunity there. And if there's a week that goes by, you've definitely squandered an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And so for, you know, for a sense of what that looks like for me personally, at Brightcore, there was a seven-year window there between seed stage and Series A where we were not funding the company. I took a call from at least one capital partner every single week for seven years. So by the end of wow. that, I, and I built a list and it was, and I would circle back around. Some weeks I would take two or three calls. So by the time I went to do a series, a fundraise, I had over 400 capital firms in a spreadsheet that I had man maintaining an active, you know, just here and there dialogue with so that when it came time to actually raise funds, they felt like they knew who I was. They felt like they knew where I was heading. They knew what I had said I was going to do in the past relative to where I am now in the present. And I knew which one of those people were had the right attitude, outlook, mentality, thesis, you know, portfolio, fund stage, all of those things to what I was trying to accomplish. And that worked out mm -hmm. really well for me. Um, similarly then going into DevStride, which DevStride just is at the, at the tail end of closing a seed stage. We actually just signed a term sheet last week, which I'm very excited about. So we have lead uh, investors, we have a bunch of follow on investors. We're building a syndicate right now. So that's all happening for DevStride. Um, similarly, I both went back to some of that network, but also spent about a year building a new network of, um, investors who are focused on seed stage capital. And I have traveled, I have been on a thousand, um, meetups. I'm in discord servers. I am all over the place trying to make sure that I know who everyone is because relationship and networking tends to matter a lot more than anyone is going to tell you it does. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, so, you know, it, one of the things that I think is really encouraging is, of course, obviously, I'm a six foot tall white man sitting here saying that. So that, that plays for me naturally. And in fact, now I'm a six foot tall white man with a, a successful exit in a previous company. So now I have money. Yeah. Uh, so so, so I, like all the systems of power play in my favor. So that, mm. that's, that's an easy thing for me to say. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think a, a more something that I find very compelling and interesting and something that I personally, uh, with my own private wealth, I invest in a lot is um, there are a lot of funds now that specifically go out and target underrepresented founders and underrepresented fund managers, both. And so I have a big passion for that myself. It's something that I like to invest in. I invest through a network called First Close Partners, 
mm-hmm. um, which is then run by Lowenstein Sandler, which is a fantastic legal firm in New York. And, um, and, and so it was true 15 years ago that if you were an underrepresented class of some sort, it could be very hard to break into the capital markets. Those barriers, it is still harder than it is for me, without any doubt, but those barriers mm-hmm. are declining. And so I think, think you know, for anybody who listens to this podcast who who is like, I can't get anyone to call me back and talk to me, um, it, it, you know, I would potentially be able to help you connect you through to capital partners who would be willing to talk to you if, of course, you have a good idea and not just, you know, garbage on a napkin, <laughs> which, again, <laughs> no one's going to invest in garbage on a napkin. <laughs> so. that, that is sometimes the problem. You know, I speak to people that are going, oh, these people are idiots. It's just because they don't know, you know, it's just because I'm not networked. And then you go, well, it might not just be that. Could just right. be bad yeah, idea, right? You know, yeah, yeah. maybe it's maybe the next one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, but you know, no. an idea. I'll, I'll tag onto that just a second. An idea is is a lot more. I, I I do run into this a lot too. A lot of people think an idea is I I have a vision for this product or service that should exist in the future, and that's my idea. Mm. That's not an idea. Everyone in the world has those like, like every morning yeah. every person yeah, yeah, is taking yeah. a shower and it's like you know it would be cool yeah. and they come up with some great idea that's not an idea that anyone cares about what people care about when they say do you have an idea what they mean is do you have a comprehensive cohesive product service go to market funding scaling all those things are part of a comprehensive idea it's mm-hmm. not just oh i think it would be cool if there was you know facebook but for plumbers <laughs> that's not <laughs> That's not what they mean. They, they, they mean a, a cohesive plan. And so an idea is much larger, I think, than what a lot of people recognize as well. That's so true. I mean, there's, yeah, I, the amount of, I mean, you're, you're, you're a very successful entrepreneur. You'll have friends that aren't in that world. And, and you must have, oh, I've got this idea. And, and you just go, well, go and do it. Go, go and do it. Great, go for it. Because you've got to get it started. And then someone will give you some money and show, show interest. And, and But you've got to just do it. Um, that is, my my that favorite is... one is uh, when people are like, like, oh, I thought of that first when some company is successful. And I'm like, like did you now? Did you? You and every other person alive always knew that, you know, it would be great if I could pick up my mobile phone and hit a button and a car would show up. But you got to hand it to Uber and to Lyft and the people who actually went out and made it happen. It's the execution that's hard. It's not coming up with a wouldn't it be great if this existed in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I do remember painfully. Um, I saw there was twenty. It was a twenty-four hour turnaround laundry service. It was like all app driven, and and they would come pick it up from the desk. Uh, and I saw it was a thing in the states. It was even like operating in more. I think it's probably operating in San Francisco at the time. And uh, this is obviously when everyone worked in right, right. suits. And uh, and I was desperately trying to register Laundrap as a as a as a as a name. And I was like going to town. I'd gone out for funding. Uh, and then I think it was one of the the Uber execs had, had left to launch exactly that in London. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but uh, he, he might the, win. Yeah, that was the only one where I was going around. I was like, I've just, I, that, that was my idea. Um, but yeah, now we're not working in offices. It's probably dying a horrible death. So, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not say, happy, yeah, no, I'm, nobody's I'm not happy about that, but you know, I'm, I'm happy I'm not running it. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you and I are both in t-shirts right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Working from home. And, uh, you know, and we were talking about the fact that I probably don't wash t-shirts as much as I should do these days because I never, I never, never see anyone in public. Um, uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about as well, and, and, and this is just an advice session for, for new founders, so I apologize for utilizing you that way, Phil. Um, but yeah, um, the, the, what's the, 
what's the best piece of advice you would give a founder that isn't isn't about funding what's what's this kind of nugget let's say that person who's got an idea but they've got a proper idea and and, then they've gone all the way through um maybe maybe it's something that that surprised you um in your journey okay well i'll say something that may be a bit contrarian to a lot of what you hear normally Mm -hmm. and so you can let this be in in the comment section everyone can rage back and forth about this one yeah um you know you hear a lot about setting like a 100x goal and that you have to set your 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 goals really 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 high and Mm -hmm. if you're going to achieve you know extraordinary outcomes i personally think that's a bunch of crap and i think that is wrong and and here's why i i've gone through seasons of my career where i tried to set the bar insanely high thinking that even if we miss this insanely high bar at least you know everyone was striving for their very best and whatever what i've really found is that it does a couple of things. Number one, it crushes your team because no one can ever make you happy. No one can mm. ever meet the goal. Mm. Who wants to who wants to be in any environment where no matter how hard I work, I'm never going to achieve the objective. That that's that's a miserable working environment. Number mm. two, it makes you sound like an idiot to people in the know who understand what it really takes to get from point A to point B. And if you come in and show someone, for example, a pitch deck where you're going to do like a B2B service offering and you're showing that you're going to pick up a thousand businesses in your first year of operations with a million dollar budget, like you're you're wrong. You're not going to do that. And no one's going to do that. And so so it, it can it can um, detract from your credibility. Mm-hmm. It can demoralize your team. And so I actually, one of the best pieces of advice of advice I've been given and that I, I give other people frequently is set your targets aggressive. Don't make them easy. Easy is wrong, mm. but like 15% higher than where you think you're likely to land so that everyone is stretching some, but they are stretching within reason. And that will force you then, it, it does something really meaningful on the backside as a founder it forces you to directionally plan more for what you have instead of what you hope to have, you know, all everything going perfectly, pie in the sky, best possible outcome. We're gonna go do all these things. Founders have a tendency to get whipped up about those things. Mm-hmm. And then the issue with that is you'll have a tendency to talk about that in front of customers and investors and key staff. And you start setting an expectation that then if the expectation doesn't get met, everyone feels let down. And the difference between feeling let down and feeling enthusiastic is simply what expectation you set up front. Mm-hmm. And so I really think that, 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 and I give this advice all the time, because I do a lot of advising. I get hit up by a lot of early startups and asked to come in and advise. And so I, I run into a lot of founders who show me sort of pro formas that are clearly, you know, 500, 1,000% more aggressive than they should be. And, you know, and they've got 10 months of runway and they're going to raise another, you know, for 5X, you know, in in six months. I'm like, no, you're not. And that's why Mm. companies fail at such a high rate because people Mm -hmm. are planning for the, it's almost like um, gambling. It's Mm. much more like going to the casino than it is like running a business. Mm -hmm. And I think running a business is much more about thinking about what resources you do have if you don't have a resource instead of hoping for it to be there and setting some wildly ambitious goal, I think instead you build a plan, a very mm-hmm. meaningful action plan to go out and acquire the resource that you need and plan for what you have instead of mm-hmm. what you hope you will have if everything goes perfectly in the future. Yeah. And I think that's very timely advice. You know, we've seen a bit of a 
restriction on on the markets and 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 on the investments particularly at those earlier stages and and, and we're seeing businesses you know struggle and, and that look that's no criticism you, you you're operating in a certain environment where you can go from round to round to round um but when that revo- that rug's pulled away it is interesting how quickly and sharply that's had to reset and and, and i've had a few sort of painful conversations lately around you know, someone said, oh, they've gone for profitability really early. And 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 we're sort of joking about it, going, oh, how old-fashioned, you know, like... You know, <laughs> right, right, right. How like, quaint. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, oh, really? Profitability, oh. Um, and, 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 you know, it, good business fundamentals. Uh, I, I always... I always it's so, such a sharp memory of mine is the other way of... of, of we, we started a new team at some um, business I worked at, and uh, uh, they did 467% of targets, and everyone was popping champagne. I <laughs> just, like, lonely and at the back when doesn't that mean your target's just wildly inappropriate for the opportunity you know that's the, this is this isn't you didn't understand your market at all yeah yeah like no one should never do you should never do 467 percent of target they just need your right. target it's terrible um but no you're right but i did it was funny as you were talking i felt sort of slightly admonished even though you weren't doing it with me because i'd set myself a target doing 300 percent of what we did last year um and 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 i think we'll track to do like 50 to, to 100 which will be incredible yeah. you know and you're right, like, right right exactly but why yeah. did you put that you know it would have been even it would have been amazing to do 50%. Now we're going, oh, yeah. 300. And, and then halfway through the year, you have to reset and go, oh, that's not going to happen. And, and you know, it's uh, it's just a sort of stick to hit yourself with and your team, I think. Exactly. It, it, it's all a question of your own psychology. And, mm. and, 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 and of course, a lot of that has to do with with how long do you plan to stay in it? And obviously 16 years at my last company, um, sure. I tend to be a founder who has a long range vision and and, yeah. and I like to endure. And, you know, the, the three, 500%, you know, growth target thing, it's not that it can't happen. It does happen. Some companies pull it off and that's great. And if you have reason to believe you can, it's absolutely reasonable to set your target there. But again, mm-hmm. with what you have, the resources you have, like this is a real objective we can actually go hit. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is if you set that objective and, it, and it's this, you know, giant stretch goal and you do that year over year, you're running a sprint, not a marathon. And maybe, maybe yeah. that's your goal. And if that's your goal, your goal is to come in, be in and out in 18 months in some venture, then sure, go for that you know, strategy. I tend to want to be here a decade from now and mm-hmm. you know, doing what, what I'm doing, but seeing it be wildly, predictably more successful. And so, uh, and, you know, and what I found is that, that in the funding process for DevStride, a lot of what helped me raise money, because I, I am, I did just uh, secure, a, a seed, uh, lead investor during the downturn. And a lot of people that I know are like, how did you do that? No one has access to capital. And I'm like, actually I have access to a lot of capital, mm. but it's because I don't walk into a room and show people hockey sticks that make no sense. And, you know, I walk in and show them very thoughtful plans where there's a go-to-market strategy behind it. There's a hiring plan behind it. There's um, a CAC to LTV ratio that is improving over time. You know, my unit economics are improving and, 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 and there are incremental steps that you can justify at every stage. And, mm. and, and that is that builds confidence and it builds enthusiasm for people because it feels like, hey, we can make this happen. Um, and another thing, sorry, I know I'm going to chase a rabbit for one no, second. No, you, you popped on something that I think is actually a really interesting discussion point, too, that we can chase or not. Um, about, you know, going for profitability early and, and that being quaint. And obviously, as you can imagine, with the long term vision, I'm a fan of profitability. Um, I also think, though, that there is a, a, a divergence in, in profitability and how you think about profitability. 
that is sometimes underappreciated because by early founders, because if you don't have a financial background, I did not going into running Brightcore because Brightcore was a system of record for insurance companies and mm -hmm. did all their accounting. I got a, a healthy, healthy dose of financial education over the years. And, and I don't know if I consider myself a financial expert, but I understand balance sheets and I understand all the different systems of accounting pretty well now. And um, I think there's a, it's really, really important to keep an eye on the difference between your cost of goods sold versus your operating expense. And, you know, it's one thing to operate unprofitably because your, your COGS is well within the, the range of your revenue, right? And you can continue your operations indefinitely on your revenue and you are choosing to, you know, raise additional capital, take surplus profit, all those things and plow them back into, you know, operating expense and growth activities. And th mm -hmm. that's, that's a great thing to do. Um, and in that way, you could say that a business is profitable if, as long as it is a strategic choice to continue to, to make these growth plays. Mm -hmm. Where you get into trouble is when you have to make the growth play because there, there's, a, there's a thing that happens in a lot of balance sheets where people push things because they want their cost of goods sold to reflect lower because these are all looking for a gross profit margin that's really healthy. And so they take a bunch of things that are really, truly a cost of goods sold, like we have to do this to stay in business, and they push them down lower in the balance sheet where they show up in OPEX. And then you get this like distorted picture of whether or not business really is sustainable or not. And to me, the number that really matters is, does my revenue support my true cost of goods sold, my true cost of operations, mm -hmm. all things in, no messing with the numbers to, to juice my metrics, to juice my margins, like all in every single activity and tool and resource it would take to keep the lights on. And if at that point my revenue is positive, then, then actually you're fine. It's fine yeah. to be up yeah. be negative on cash flow because it's a choice then, it's not a necessity. Mm -hmm. uh, something that we, yeah, I think that's a really important point. It's something we've touched on uh, a few times on, on the pod was just that people have gone out with a, I worry, particularly in the short tech space, and you, you can have a very discreet solution, which is have a, has massive value to, to the industry, but but it, it, your USP is in that discreet solution, whether that be a product or service right. or, or a specific uh, digital MGA, for example. But then you go and you, you get success, you get momentum, and then you raise arguably more than you need. And I think some people raise these sort of huge valuations and um, you can drown under the weight of the, the capital that you've taken on board because actually the USP Very is much. built around this discrete solution, which doesn't scale. And then you have to go and compete into areas of the business, which are where you don't have a, a unique uh, proposition, where you don't have a unique advantage. Right. And, and, then, and then you've watered down what you do. So I think taking on the right funding partners, taking on the right funding amount is, is an undervalued skill because it's very tempted to go, I'll oh, raise more than what you need, sit on it. But as we know, cash in the bank is, you know, you need to spend it. Uh, otherwise, why has anyone, right. lent, why, why has anyone ventured right. you with it? And, and then, and then, yeah, you're in a, you're in a difficult situation. So, but that's a cultural thing. And that, and that is a learned thing as well. You know, I, I, I sit and Agreed. talk about venture back business. I wouldn't know what it's like. I, I bootstrapped everything I've ever done. Uh, the idea of taking on venture money to me is terrifying. Um, <laughs> um, it, but, well, it is, it is terrifying. <laughs> having yeah. done it both ways, uh, having bootstrapped for a while and then taking, taking capital, it yeah. definitely changes everything mm. about your business. And, and you do have to be mindful of the, your capital partner, their responsibility back to their LPs and their fund. And so, yeah, sure. I think for a lot of founders, 
the 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 check that gets written by a VC is like magic money. <laughs> it's yeah. like oh, yeah. I don't ever think about where that comes from. Yeah. But, but so I so I myself again, I'm an LP in in a, a fund of funds, and so so I sit on the other side of the table. I've been at all points in the table. I'm I'm now an early startup founder. I'm also an LP in a fairly sizable fund of funds. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm an advisor in a lot of mid stage companies. I run a fairly you know a post Series B company. Mm-hmm. I've been at all, all those different stages, and, and I, I have an appreciation for how the funding mechanism itself works. And, and, and I don't think, I think a lot of founders don't understand where is that money coming from and what is the responsibility the VC has, back to the LPs and their fund, to re- show a profit, to return um, capital to them within a given window of time when the fund matures and all of that. Mm-hmm. And it's really important that you understand all of those things because if you don't understand what your VC is responsible for in terms of their own responsibilities back to their LPs, you're going to find yourself all the time in a conflict with the VC because because your goals for your business are not the same as their goals for their LPs of their fund. And, and you mm. have to understand how those two things overlay. Mm. It's, it's like trying to sell to a customer without knowing what the customer's true yeah. objectives of your right. product or service are. Right. What are they really um, trying to accomplish? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, I, I'm really conscious of time, but but one last thing I, I, I did want to talk to you about is, is obviously talk a little bit more about DevStride and, and you know, why now? I think we've just established that you can't sit still um, and, and, <laughs> <laughs> and enjoy it too much. Um, but where did DevStride come from as an idea? It sounds like it was born out of kind of, uh, you know, challenges that you've met at Brightcore and 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 obviously you've 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 just you've just got your first seed investor uh where are you at with the company who's in it like give us a give us a picture yeah i really appreciate you asking um so the at Brightcore we were responsible for both a massive code base three and a half million lines of source code as well as we went through multiple generational upgrades of that source code. So that it was a massive ongoing, you know, stream of programs, if you think about like project and portfolio management. And then we were also responsible for going in and implementing Brightcore at these big insurance companies. And, you know, a large insurance implementation can involve hundreds of people for multiple years. So very complex value streams, complex project delivery. Um, and so I had uh, over the course of the years that I did that, had an opportunity to use, I think, just about every product, program, and portfolio management uh, tool out there Mm -hmm. and interfaced with all of them and found them to be very lacking on some key fronts. And so I was always frustrated by that. When my board would come to me and say, hey, we just gave you $60 million and we want you to invest it in X, Y, and Z and, and tell us where everything's at and what's the ROI we're getting on all of this. And that was actually very, very hard to come up with that data. And I had to sort of derive it from this huge variety of sources. And so have a a central thesis that the world would be better for most agile development teams if their data model across all their tools was unified. And so DevStride is, um, a lot of people think about it like like, like a Jira sort of uh, product, but it's much more than that. Mm -hmm. It's actually doing strategic portfolio management which is a step above project management. And what it does that's really kind of unique is that it lets you map out the strategic value streams of your business from top to bottom. It's sort of a big mind map. And then you house work in your value streams. And then you mm. take work out of the value streams and you assign them then to teams and projects and sprints and all the things that everyone's used to doing. Um, we've integrated time tracking and capacity planning and, and, and all the other data elements that are necessary 
so that I actually could just ultimately scratch my own itch at Brightcore, which is what's going on? <laughs> How much have we spent on X, Y, or Z? And, you know, and there's a whole series of chain on those things. What do we spend in, you know, services? And then what do we spend on the implementation for this one customer? And then this one initiative for this one customer and these three projects that make up that initiative. And so wanted to build a tool that really mapped out the strategic value chain all the way at the executive level, all the way down to the contributor level. And then, um, you know, of course, uh, all the engineers that are working with me and all the folks in our product advisory group uh, have a long list of things they dislike about all their day-to-day -day tooling. And so we've been trying to address usability and workflow and speed and all those things for your daily contributors so mm -hmm. that we have this great set of tools um, on the front lines that then ultimately all report back to unified data model so executives can get one easy roll-up view of, you know, what the hell's going on <laughs> inside of my company and where's my money going? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and so that's what we're doing with DevStride. And, and we're, we've had, you know, fabulous success so far. Um, we are, I'm at that kind of early phase now where we're, uh, we did an angel round a year ago and uh, got the product to MVP status and where it's ready to go to market, have about 25 organizations using it on a trial basis. And like, I think any good product CEO, I have an open Slack channel with all of them. And it's just like, you know, tell me every single day, everything you hate about my product so I can keep fixing it <laughs> and keep making it better and better and better. And we're actually just at the point where we're ready to launch and, and go to market. So that'll be happening in the next like 60 to 90 days where we'll actually sign up for subscriptions and the whole thing. Wow. And um, yeah, and we just closed our seed round. And so so really excited to take off with it. And and hopefully we'll we'll bring a really significant revolution to all of these sort of enterprise SaaS agile teams out there trying to track all these parallel value streams. Mm -hmm. And I think we've built something really compelling to make that much more direct, much easier, much more streamlined than it is with current tools like Jira and Rike. Yeah, super exciting. I mean, it's, it's, it's such an obvious need. And, and that's that, you know, I said, I said this yesterday, yesterday to someone that, that came on the podcast and I was like, I think when, when something's really simple to explain and understand, then you know you're onto something. Um, and and I, I've mentioned this before, but I've got a background in stand-up comedy. It's, it's like the observational comedy that someone points out. Um, and, and someone described, uh, you know, Michael McIntyre's a famous comic in the UK, and he had this thing yeah. about the uh, the drawer in the kitchen, which is just full of like batteries and, you know, rubbish, and, <laughs> and, and everyone has one. And everyone talks about him being middle of the road, and I'm like, yeah, but it's a brilliant observation. Like, and 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 because it stares you in the face. And I, I think I, I I hate using a comedy analogy because it that doesn't seem to track. But I think all the best ideas are they're, 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 they stare you in the face and you go, oh yeah, we need that. Yeah. Oh right, <laughs> yeah, right. We, yeah, yeah, this we, should we, exist yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this should exist. Why doesn't it exist? Surely someone's right. made it, and uh, and I'm really pleased someone does. Um, Phil, I I I uh, I'm really conscious of time, so. I'm going to call it there because I could talk to you all day. I think I think we did about an hour and a half first time we spoke. So, um, <laughs> you know, I really, really appreciate you coming on and appreciate you sharing all of those insights because we've got so many particularly first-time founders, people going through that journey and, and they haven't. It's nice to talk to someone that survived, <laughs> got out the other side. So, for sure. Um, and clearly not so, but it doesn't want to do it again as well. So I really, really appreciate your time because I know you're a busy guy. So um, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you so much for having me on. And, you know, I'd be happy to visit with anybody who, you know, has questions and is just trying to figure it all out because I have a, a big soft spot for, for, for the first time founder journey, having been through it myself. So thank you so much for the opportunity. No, awesome. Thanks, Bill. Take care. I'll speak to you soon. All Thanks the best. a lot. Bye.
As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, uh, alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.